Well, good morning again. It's good to see everyone. I am excited this morning, not just because May is over. I'm really excited about our passage that we're going to look at together. Uh, we're going to look at what I believe is the most important sermon ever preached in the history of the world. Okay? <laughs> the most important sermon ever preached in the history of the world. And it's a sermon that is going to be preached by a man who failed God miserably. A, a disciple who had the opportunity to stand for Christ, but in that moment chose to deny Him. But now, now we see this same man speaking a message to this crowd that is gathered unlike anything that has ever been spoken before. A man who really is risking his life for the cause of Christ. Peter will tell the story of redemption. And I am confident that it is a story that he knows by heart. It's his story. Last week we looked at Pentecost, the day the church was born. As we've been talking about, it's that time when the people of God were filled with the Spirit of God. So that they might carry out the mission of God, all for the glory of God. The disciples walked out of that upper room into a crowd that had gathered around them. And they were declaring the good news of the gospel, the mighty deeds of God. And each person in that crowd heard the message of the gospel in their native tongue. As we talked about last week, it was a message of the cross, and so it divided the crowd. There were those who were asking, what does this mean? They were listening, and they were seeing, and they were asking, what does this mean? I believe these are the people who had come to Jerusalem out of desperate need. They were there because they needed God to do something for them they could not do for themselves. They knew in their heart of hearts they could offer a sacrifice every single day of their life. And it would not remove the curse of sin in their heart. So they were looking at what was happening and they were seeing the evidence of God's hand and they were asking, what does this mean? But then there were others in the crowd, I think much like we see fill the church most every Sunday, who were there out of religious duty. They didn't see God's hand because, quite frankly, they didn't need God's help. They were doing just fine on their own. They were there to fulfill their religious obligation, and then they would just move on with life. It was like a, a respectful nod to the Lord. And then they would go do what they wanted to do. So Peter addresses this very divided crowd. And I think one of the biggest miracles of all is he has everyone's attention. Thousands, thousands of people have gathered. And now they're listening to one man speak. And we're going to look at what he says. So if you would turn to Acts chapter 2. We're going to back up into our passage last week a little bit. So Let's start in verse 12, Acts chapter 2, verse 12. And they continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, They're full of sweet wine. But Peter, 
taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judah, and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk as you suppose, for it's only the third hour of the day, but this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth my spirit upon all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, and even upon my bond slaves, men and women, I will in those days pour forth my spirit. Peter stands and says, my fellow Jews, he presents himself as one of the crowd. I'm like you. He says, let me have your attention. Listen closely to my words. Because you need to understand these disciples are not drunk as you suppose them to be. He says, after all, it's only 9 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> if you're going to get drunk, that's going to happen later in the day. And so you've got to come up with a better explanation than that. And if you will listen, I will tell you exactly What's going on? And then he quotes the prophet Joel. And before we look at that reference, I want you to pause just a minute and think about something. Did Peter wake up that day knowing that he was going to preach that morning? Did he have some notes that he had prepared beforehand that he just pulled out to be able to to speak from like I do every Sunday? Did he have a Bible in his hand? No, none none of those things were true. And yet, he had spoke God's word from what he had stored in his heart. And I believe, at least as I think through this, I, I wonder, let me just suggest to you, I wonder if this passage which he now quotes might have been one that he and the other disciples looked at together in the upper room. It makes sense to me because... When Jesus last left them, he said, go, wait in Jerusalem for what the Father has promised. And he explains, for you will be baptized by the Holy Spirit. Now that's new information in terms of the disciples trying to understand exactly what he meant. And so as they waited, I I know that they searched the scripture to, to better understand what Jesus had said. And what was written in Joel Joel seems to have a a direct connection to what they are now experiencing. He says from that passage, In the last days, God will pour forth His Spirit. He goes on and explains to the passage that it's it's a miraculous blessing because it has no boundary. You'll notice there that it says that This miraculous blessing will fall on both male and female. He says, your sons and your daughters, old men and young. So it's given to both men and women. It's given to both young and old. He says it's given to servants and bond slaves. I believe that when those 120 disciples walked out of the upper room, having been filled with the Spirit that God has poured forth, that he says, you are seeing exactly what Joel had promised. 
the Spirit of God poured out on the people of God without boundary because of their belief in Christ. Now, what's interesting is that in the original context, this passage from Joel was given during a judgment. A a plague of locusts had devastated the land. In fact, it was so severe that the devastation had created a terrible famine among God's people. And Joel is using this passage to call the Israelites to repentance. Because at that time, what they were experiencing was a judgment of God because of Israel's sin. And so Joel is using this experience and he's, he's looking forward to a future day of God's judgment. A day that he calls the day of the Lord. And he explains that beginning in verse 19. He says, I will grant wonders in the sky and signs on the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. There's a period of time that Joel is pointing to known as the last days, leading to a divine judgment known as the day of the Lord. So what Joel is doing is he is looking forward to a future time when there will be a window of opportunity beginning when the Spirit of God is being poured out on God's people, marking the start, the very beginning of the last days. That will then culminate in a day of judgment known as the day of the Lord. Peter is telling the crowd that Joel's prophecy is being fulfilled in your presence right now. The pouring out of God's Spirit marks definitively the beginning of the last days. And every day we live, we move one day closer to the day of the Lord, the day of judgment. And the only way, don't miss this, the only way to be delivered in that day of judgment is based on verse 21. And it shall be that everyone who calls upon the shall be saved. The the entire focus of of this passage that, that, that Peter is using in his sermon is on God. The Spirit of God, which comes upon the, the people of God in the last days before the judgment of God. And only those who trust in God will be saved. Peter is saying, look guys, that's what's happening because that's what's coming. This is what's happening right here and now because the day of the Lord is what's coming. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was in the crowd that day, I probably had lots of questions, but I can assure you Peter had my attention. And I was listening. That's exactly what we see happening in our passage. Look at how it continues in verse 22. It goes on and says, Men of Israel, listen. 
Listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. Peter shifts from a focus on God to the person and work of Christ. And he basically says, you know who he is. You know where he's from. You know what he's done. You may disagree with his message, but you cannot deny his miracles. And what you need to know today is that the miracles that he performed were based on the power of God at work through him. I mean, come on. How else do you explain raising a dead man to life? I mean, who does that other than God? And and I don't know this, it doesn't say it, but I have a strong conviction that one of those 120 disciples that were present at Pentecost was Lazarus. Standing right there in their midst, raised from death to life. And I don't want you to lose sight of the fact that all these events are are taking place just over a month since the crucifixion. So not very long. It it was still fresh in everyone's mind. And I think they're probably trying to go on with life as normal, but Peter is unwilling to let that happen. So listen to how he continues in verse 23. This man, Jesus, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you... Nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in his power. You see, Peter is intentionally engaging with his audience to establish their guilt. Anything that, everything that he said right so far is not new information, okay? They're not hearing anything they haven't already heard. The people all knew about the person and work of Christ. Many of them probably saw his miracles. They probably sat under his teaching. And because they are fully aware, they are completely responsible. They cannot pass it off. To someone else, even though they handed Jesus over to godless men. But that does not mean that they can wash their hands of their guilt. Any more than when Pilate washed his hands when he passed Jesus over to the Jews and said, basically, okay, do what you want. Both of their hands have blood on them. They all stand guilty before God. But make no mistake, God is still sovereign in the midst of all that. And I want you to notice the tension between human responsibility and divine sovereignty. Jesus died, Peter says, because men made a deliberate decision. People made a choice. And they chose to see him crucified. They chose the cross. Many of those standing there at Pentecost were present on the day when they called for the crucifixion. And they were saying with their own voices, crucify him. 
Crucify him. But God, God used their willful rebellion to bring about an eternal purpose. Everything worked according to God's sovereign plan. Peter makes it clear, you nailed Jesus to the cross. You stand guilty before a holy God. But that holy God set him free. You are guilty. But God's power is greater than your sin. Boy, if you don't hear anything else this morning, don't miss that. You're guilty. I'm guilty. But God's power is greater than our sin. What you intended for evil, God in his sovereignty has used for good. And not even death itself could stand in the way. And then Peter quotes a psalm from David when he says in verse 25, For David says of him, I was always beholding the Lord in my presence, for he is at my right hand, that I might not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will abide in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to the grave, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Now, if you look at this psalm really closely, you can see that, that it seems as if David is referring to himself. It's all in first person, right? He says, I saw the Lord. He was at my right hand, and, and, and I will not be shaken. And that's because I believe David is professing a conviction, a conviction that, that God will not abandon what he promises to protect. God will not abandon what he promises to protect. But Peter will now take this psalm of David's assurance and apply it to the person and work of Christ. Because as he will go on to describe, God did not promise in this moment, David is not professing that, that God promised that he would live forever, that he would never die. What God promised is that that covenant that he made with David would never die. That the throne of David would exist eternally. And on that throne, a Messiah will reign. That's the promise that he will not abandon. And Peter is making the point that that, that promise has been fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is the Messiah. David was right. God will not abandon what he promises to protect. And Jesus is that promise fulfilled. He is the Messiah in the line of David who reigns on David's throne for eternity. He is the Holy One, as the psalm says, whose body God did not allow to go through decay. That's not David. That's the Messiah. That's Jesus. Peter's saying that what David believed was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. 
Look at how he continues in verse 29. Brethren, I'm confident to say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us today. And so because he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants upon his throne. See, that's the promise he will not abandon. Verse 31, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ. See the connection? And he would neither abandon him to the grave, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus, God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. See, the greatest evidence of God's promise being fulfilled is the empty grave. He says, look, everyone knows King David died. We know where his tomb is, and we know that that tomb is filled with his remains. It's common knowledge. No one can deny it. But equally as evident is the fact that Jesus' tomb is empty. Now, we all know from the testimony of Scripture, as did the disciples, that the religious leaders bribed the guards to tell everyone the real the reason that the body's not there is because it was stolen. But Peter says, no. We, we are eyewitnesses to the fact that Jesus is alive. That he has risen from the grave because God will not abandon what he promises to protect. God's covenant promise with David was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He is the Messiah who will reign forevermore. And then look at what he says in verse 33. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. Now we're going full circle. We're back to the pouring out of the Spirit as he began with his sermon. I want you to to follow the progression of what Peter is saying to this crowd. He began by quoting the prophet Joel, claiming that the prophecy is fulfilled in their presence, that the pouring out of God's Spirit is, in fact, the definitive beginning of the last days, A, a window of opportunity That will end on a day that has been set by God known as the day of judgment or the day of the Lord. But until that day, within that window of opportunity, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And then he shifts to the Messiah and he establishes the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of what God had promised. That even though he was nailed to the cross, that God has raised him from the dead. And that through his resurrection, he will reign eternal as a descendant of David. He points out in verse 33 that it is Jesus Christ who has been exalted to the right hand of God. And from this place of authority, in God's presence, he is the mediator of a divine promise. He pours forth the Spirit just as God has promised. 
this is what the crowd has witnessed. And it marks the beginning of the last days when God starts by pouring forth His Spirit. Do you see how He's come full circle in His sermon? But then Peter is going to drop a bomb. And this is one that I assure you no one saw coming. Because in many ways, everything that he said up to this point, they've heard before. If nothing else, they've heard it from Jesus himself during his life and ministry. But now they're about to make a connection that I don't know that they've ever made before. Look at verse 34. Peter says, for it was not David who ascended into heaven. But he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. Peter quotes another psalm. A psalm of David where David is identifying someone at the right hand of God. The Lord says to my Lord. Peter is saying, but we all know David's not the one who ascended into heaven. Instead, it was the Messiah. And since Jesus is Messiah, then that's who he's speaking of at the right hand of God. Not only that, the one who sits permanently in the presence of God is the one who shares in his glory. The one who sits permanently in the presence of God is the one who shares in his glory. After all, think back. Didn't Jesus say, I and the Father are one? And Peter is looking at that message of Christ and the evidence of the resurrection. And he's saying, what Jesus said is absolutely true. Based on everything you've witnessed, God has made him, Jesus, to be both Lord and Christ. And please understand when it says that God made him to be, it is in no way suggesting that God in some way created something new in that moment. Now what he's saying is that God is revealing what has always been true. He is showing the world What has always been known, and that is that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. And here's what they didn't see coming. Jesus, the promised Messiah, is God. That's the connection they had not made. Jesus, the promised Messiah, is God. In other words, you can't look at Jesus and not see God. He is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his nature. When you see Jesus, you see God because they share in the same divine glory. They reign co-eternal in the heavens by the Spirit of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune God, sovereign, Over all creation, when you see Jesus, you see God. 
See, when it's all said and done, what Peter is ultimately doing is calling the Israelites to repentance, just like the prophet Joel was. But by making this connection, here's what he's proclaiming. He's proclaiming that everyone who calls upon the name of Jesus, who is Lord, will be saved. The reason I know that's true is because of what is affirmed all throughout Scripture, and maybe the best place is Romans chapter 10. If you would, turn there with me. Keep your finger there in Acts, but turn to Romans chapter 10, verse 9. And I want you to listen to what Paul is going to write to the Romans in light of what Peter has said to the Israelites. In verse 9. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will be disappoint, not disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord over all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. And then he quotes the very same passage. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be Saved. This is a stunning proclamation being made by Peter on the day of Pentecost. Which is why I believe you see the magnificent response of the crowd that Matt Wade is going to walk through next week. Now, we can look at this on one hand and say that it was the first time that this connection was made on the day of Pentecost, but that isn't... Uh, entirely true because really what Peter's proclaiming is the testimony of all of scripture it's, it's said from the left hand side all the way to the right hand side it's being fulfilled before their very eyes this was a message that Jesus and his ministry was the fulfillment of all of scripture which is why I believe it is the most important sermon ever preached in the history of the world. Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah, is God incarnate. And all who call upon the name of the Lord, all who call upon the name of Christ, who is Lord, will be saved. Now, next week we're going to look at the response of the crowd. This week, I think we should consider our response to this sermon. And so I want to give you three things that I would urge you to consider in response to what you've heard. Number one, consider the importance of God's Word. Consider the importance of God's Word. Now, you've heard me repeat this over and over again, and you'll never hear me stop. Because I think it's that important. You see, Peter and the other disciples learned about God's ways... By spending time in God's Word. And not only did they read it, they stored it, they treasured it in their heart. They, they memorized it in their mind. As we said, Peter didn't get up that morning and know that he was going to preach a sermon. He had no notes. He had no Bible. 
but he quoted scripture all throughout the sermon. And that's because he treasured it in his heart. And I believe what is true for Peter is true for us. Because hear me on this. Some of our most important sermons in life are ones that we will not have planned to make. It might be a teachable moment with your kids. It might be a moment of crisis with a friend. It might be a conversation with a neighbor or a moment of temptation in your own life. Those are unplanned events. And what you have to say in those moments is based on what you have on your heart. Because you don't plan for those moments. Not only that, what about those moments when you need to preach to yourself? When you need to remind yourself what is good and right and true, what are you going to say? Well, you're going to say whatever you've treasured in your heart. That's why it's written in Psalm 119. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. It goes on and says, With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. For your word I have treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. So maybe this would be a good week to begin to treasure God's word in your heart and memorize some passages. Now, Roger used to do this every summer. It was the summer memory challenge. I have failed to carry that tradition on and shame on me. Because it's a great reminder that we need to have to treasure God's word in our heart. So here's my challenge for all of us this summer. Isaiah chapter 40. Memorize Isaiah chapter 40. And I don't care if you get three verses, 28 verses, 10 verses, you're going to walk away from that going, wow, I had no idea how big this was, how big God is. Because those verses are going to make it explicitly clear. You will not regret committing that passage to memory. So, Consider the importance of God's word and store it in your heart. Isaiah chapter 40. The second thing I think we should consider is the security of God's promise. I don't know about you, but I find great comfort in knowing that God does not abandon what he promises to protect. And what that tells me is that my security in the eyes of God is not based on my performance but instead, it's based on his promise. And so maybe this week, you remind yourself of some of those promises of God. Like the promise that he says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. What that's saying is that there is never a moment in your lifetime, no, no matter how lonely you may feel in that moment, that he is not with you. Maybe the promise of Isaiah that God will give strength to the weary. That he will give power to the weak. Or what about the promise that there's no temptation that will come upon you that is not common to man. That God is faithful and not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But in everything, provide a way of escape so that you can endure it. 
That's a promise. I need to hear that promise. I need to hear it in those moments of temptation. So number one, I know that it's not more than I can handle. And number two, I'm looking for an escape. Because that's the promise. Or the promise that he who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. So in those moments, when you realize that you passed right by the way of escape, you know that he's not grown weary of you. That he will never leave you or forsake you. So here's what I would like for you to do with these promises that you might call to mind this week. I want to ask you to take a promise of God that means something to you and share it with someone else. Now, be careful here because don't share the promise that you think they need to hear. Okay? You share the promise that you needed to hear, that spoke to your heart in that moment. And then let God take that truth and decide how to use it in someone else's life. You just share it. Take God's word, treasure it in your heart, remind yourself of God's promises, and then share it with someone else. Last one, and this is a question. This is an important question. I would like for you to ask yourself, am I a faithful witness? Am I a faithful witness? Because I want you to put things into perspective here. That window of opportunity that began at the day of Pentecost, 2,000 years ago, is a lot smaller now than it was then, for sure. And every day we live, we move one day closer to that promised day of the Lord. And not only that, every day we live, we are surrounded by a crowd of witnesses. Now, those witnesses may be your kids or your co-workers or your spouse. So the question is, what are you teaching them about who God is by how you live. When you have the opportunity, very likely, in one of those unplanned moments, what do you say? Do you share the hope that is within you? Do you have the the treasure of God's Word stored in your heart? Well, I assure you, you do if you walk by the Spirit. If you trust in Him more than you trust in yourself. Because actually, that's another promise of God. Jesus told His disciples, listen, don't worry about what to say in those unplanned moments. He says, I promise, I will give you the right words at the right time. For it is not you who speaks, Jesus said, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. What He's saying is, We are just a witness for what God wants to say. Are you a faithful witness? After all, you are the people of God who have been filled with the Spirit of God and been called to carry out the mission of God in a way that brings glory and honor to God. What was true 
of the disciples at Pentecost is equally true for you and I today. And so I want you to personalize the sermon that Peter preached and decide how you're going to respond. And at least take into consideration the importance of God's Word. The importance of God's promises. And the calling to be a witness. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the power of your truth. That I don't care how long it takes for you to return. It will not grow old because you have not grown weary. And it is your spirit that fills the truth of your word that speaks to the very core of our heart in ways that brings conviction, in ways that bring encouragement, in ways that bring hope of eternal life because of faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for Peter for being filled with the Spirit and making it so explicitly clear that all the promises of God are yes in Jesus Christ. And so, Father, may we have firm conviction, as, as the disciples did on that day, even as much in our day as we walk out of this room, that we are your witnesses. We have your word. Spoken by your Spirit, the right moment, in the right way, for you to call people to yourself. Thank you that you're not one who grows weary or becomes tired. We love you, Jesus. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Have a great day.